0: Hey, it's Marcel. Let me get honest with you for a minute. We've reached a time in history when building up strong leaders truly matters if you want to grow your business. But managing through fear, command and control, and do as I say ways of managing is not going to get you there. So, what will? In my research, I found that the most effective leadership boils down to six key behaviors. They are behaviors that when filtered down to every management level, can create high performance in your teams and build a great work culture. By the way, this is the new topic that I speak on at company events and conferences and virtual stages all over the world. It's great for keynotes, webinars, half-day or full-day workshops, and leadership retreats. So if you wanna learn a clear and practical framework To help design the best work environment for your people to flourish, this is the way to go, and I can show you how to do it. To book me for your event, visit my website, Marcelschwantis.com, and click on Speaking. Enjoy the show. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology,
1: metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love and Action Podcast, where we
0: hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Hey, glad you are here. Thanks for choosing to spend time with us. We are grateful, and if you could share this episode with a friend on social media, we would be even more grateful. That small gesture will help us get to our goal of one million downloads. So back in 2018, a new term entered the the business lexicon because of a a best-selling book called The Fearless Organization, authored by Harvard Business School professor, Dr. Amy Edmondson. So in Amy's research, she discovered something really important about high-performing teams, right? If you read it, you know what I'm talking about, that when people are allowed to safely express ideas and and ask questions and admit mistakes without the fear of you know being shut down or punished. Well good things happen. It's it's what leads to a high performing culture. And Amy called it what else? Psychological safety. And now it's a household term. Sometimes it's even used out of context, you know, as a catch all term for engagement, well-being, and lots of other people and culture stuff. So Amy has followed up um, that, that book with a, a new book. It's called Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. There's the cover if you're watching on YouTube. And it's a blurry picture because I yeah. got the, the blur on. But it was just released in September. So drawing on her decades of, of original research, Amy shares how we can surpass a superficial approach to failure. This is a book about failing. (laughs) So let me quote her. Amy says, it's not easy or obvious to know how to fail well, but with so many critical and complex issues facing us personally in business and in the world at large, we must learn to frame failure differently as a source of information, as part of our personal development and as an experience shared by everyone. And believe me, it is shared by everyone because I can't think of one person who has not failed, whatever your role, title, status is. So I'm thrilled, and you've probably heard her, heard her already snickering in the background, <laughs> that Amy Edmondson is here to share her findings about failing in her new book. So this is her second appearance on the show, by the way. She was here with the captivating Tomas Chamorro per music back, I don't know, over a year ago or so. If you wanna check out that episode, it's episode 87. All right, so if you're new to Amy Edmondson, she is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. She's renowned for her research, as I stated earlier on psychological safety over 20 years. Her award-winning work has appeared all over the map, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and I could go on and on and on. She was named by Thinkers50 in 2021 as the number one management thinker in the world. And Dr. Amy Edmondson now joins us. Welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Amy, we uh, we, we have a new tradition, and I don't think I sprung this up on either you or Tomas last time. So this is how we start. You ready? I'm ready what's your story
1: <laughs> how much time do you have uh, <laughs> honestly let, let, let me think um, how best to answer that I suppose you know my my story if we start in the present moment is I'm a I'm a professor I'm a, I'm a scholar of of management of organizational behavior I'm at I'm at Harvard Business School uh, where I've been for the last quarter century but that is certainly not uh, where I started um, not even where i was intending to go this this is um, about as far a field of my original uh career aspirations as as you can imagine uh so i guess you could say i'm a failed engineer um, i started i studied engineering in college i started out as an engineer um, in a, a unique capacity, I was the um, so-called chief engineer for Buckminster Fuller. At that time, I was his only engineer, so I had no one to chief just me, um, which was enough, really. Uh, and um, and and Buckminster Fuller, as as some of our listeners may know, was was a rather famous um, inventor and and thinker and visionary, maybe best described as a as a futurist and and his kind of single-minded idea was, how do we use our minds and our capability for design and, and innovation to make the world better for all? Right? It's, a, it's a kind of idealistic and rather large, encompassing vision, if you will. Um, mm. And he didn't think there was one best way to do that. He thought we all had a kind of obligation to do that with our own skills and, and um and, and education to, to to try to do that. So you can probably imagine that that was a very inspiring place to work, and it was. Um, Bucky, who was in his 80s at the time, uh, was 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 generous and warm, and and visionary and inspiring. And it was just, I have to say, he spoiled me for real work. Right when you when you have a job where my my job was trigonometric calculations for the development of new geodesic uh, formations. Um I loved it. I got to do engineering drawings. I got to build models. I got to interact um, with with uh, people in in different parts of the world who were trying to apply these ideas. So it was a joy, right it was it was um it's hard to um, imagine a kind of more inspiring way to have your first job and it lasted for about about three years and until he um, he died um, at actually at his wife's deathbed, which was a shock right at the wow. time. I mean, he was a week shy of eighty-eight, but still, it was it was not something that we we saw coming. And at that time, I had to decide. Well, I had to decide what to do next. And people had throughout that three years, other people in the organization had said I was good at explaining things. So they used to say you should sort of write a book that makes Bucky's mathematical ideas more accessible to people. And I used to say, sure, you know, thinking not a writer, you know, when am I going to do that? But after he died, so suddenly I had this idea that I either have to do that now or never. I mean, I understood that if I go find another job, I will be busy for the rest of my life. I will never, I will never do this. And I had this sense of obligation that it was, that it was something that, um, I owed Bucky. I owed Bucky this opportunity to make some of his ideas more accessible. So, hmm. I went home. I moved home back in with my parents and um, and wrote this book. And um, fortunately, it was it was picked up by. Let's see if it's ah, it's right here actually. Just sort of for fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, well, this is it's like academic sort of an academic, it doesn't go with, with my sweater. Um, but uh it's called a Fuller Explanation and yeah. it's the synergetic geometry of our of Buckminster Fuller. But that took me, you know, that took me um a little over a year to write it, another another quarter of a year to um do all the drawings. It has many, many drawings, and um, and then you know, to all the copy edits that happen and all that stuff. So so I was um, while I was doing that, in order to make a little bit of money, I taught um, I taught either math or engineering as a sort of a substitute, both in a high school and then later in a, um, a college called Pratt Institute in, in New York. And somewhere in the back of my mind, and then I promise I'll wrap this up, I started to realize that this is what I was. I was a kind of a writer, a teacher. You know, I was someone who could think and translate and make sure people got complicated things. But then I was like, but I didn't have a field. I I knew I wasn't really going to be an engineer or or an architect. And so I almost had to start from scratch. After the book came out, I had to start from scratch. But in the back of my mind, there was this little idea that almost didn't have a name, but that I was an academic. But I didn't have a field. And in my search then for a job, because of course I had to have a job, I, I met a wonderful visionary entrepreneur named Larry Wilson, who had started Wilson Learning Corporation in the, in the sixties. And, you know, I'd done quite well and he'd then. Retired, and he said he flunked retirement. He was in his fifties, so he started another company uh, called Pecos River Learning Centers. and And he he um, he met me, you know, essentially on an airplane when I was giving I was giving a talk about about Buckminster Fuller's work. And he said, "Come work for me." And long story short, I didn't really have a better idea, so I went uh, to work for him. And the company he had just started was in the culture change business. It was all about going into companies and helping leaders lead and building teams and 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 in my shorthand we were trying to build learning organizations some of mm-hmm. corporate americas uh, you know largest players they ranged from general motors to apple to dupont uh you know to to craft foods it was it was it was really fun like i was it was unexpectedly fun um and I was, he, Larry asked me to be his sort of head of research. And so I got to read a lot of the, you know, a lot of the research in this field and meet a lot of the researchers and, and spend a lot of time in companies. And at some point I thought, you know, this is great stuff, but I have no training, right? No formal training. I have no psychology. I have no business. So I thought I better go back to school and so 10 years after graduating from college, I I went and I didn't realize at the time that people don't do a PhD that often 10 years later, you know, you do it when you're younger. Um, yeah. But so it was, it was a bit of a shock at first to, to you know, to get to uh, back to a university setting and uh, be taking statistics and, and you know, basics of, of psychological and management research and my head was spinning, and I, I thought for at least the first two years, I'm going to have to drop out. But because I just was, I felt I was so in over my head. But I slowly but surely got, got the hang of it. I started to understand what academic writing is like, and what the, what what the papers need to be like, and what the research looks like. And by my third year, I was really beginning to realize, this is who I am. This wow. is where this is where I belong, which was quite a joyful thing and you know that is that is love in action right when you find work that's that you feel is almost meant for you um, yeah. and you can do it in a way that people seem to appreciate what I was doing and and it, you know the ideation and the writing like I had I'd had learned with the Bucky book how to write I hadn't really written in college I'd done problem sets but I learned how to write Clearly, and when it wasn't right, I would just you know cross it out and try again. And so there was this dawning recognition that I am a, I am a, I'm a writer. I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm a, I'm a teacher, and they pay me to do this, right? They you know they pay you to go to a PhD program, and then they pay you. Well, ultimately, I was able to get a faculty job um, when I graduated, and yeah. I've been there ever since.
0: Such a great story. I'm so glad you shared. Uh, there's not one one second of that I'm going to edit out because, you know, so many <laughs> people are, w- we're so used to to hearing and about you and reading about you. And we think, oh, yeah, Amy Edmondson has always been a scholar and a researcher, and she's worked at Harvard Business School forever. You know, she, she was probably born there. And <laughs> so to hear that you were actually at one time an engineer and one that actually failed average <laughs> trade, So yeah, it's good to, yeah. it's good to it know was, that.
1: It was a circuitous journey. It really was. Yeah. I mean, I even, even describing it like that, there's, there's, there were many false starts, you know, I remember um, this was pre-internet, obviously, but I, you know, I remember applying for a job um, that, you know, it sounded like they were looking for, you know, smart, hardworking people. I thought I could be that. And, and, you know, just getting, I got rejected, uh You know, and and it just feels, it feels bad, of course, but it's partly, it's like the finding the fit, right? Finding the fit between um, what you're good at and what the world needs is is not an easy, uh, it's not an easy journey, but once you find it, if you find it, you're lucky. Yeah,
0: yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess that's that's a good segue to the book, actually, since we're talking about failing. (laughs) So let's start from the top, right? Kind of wrong and then we'll just kind of drill down. Uh, so what what's the big idea behind the book? Give us the 30,000 foot level.
1: Sure. I think the big idea, wait for it, is that not all failure is alike. You know, when we when we hear failure, we think bad. We think we don't want that, we want success. And it is true that some failures are bad and that they can and I think should be prevented as often as possible. But some failures are genuinely good because they bring us new information that we truly couldn't have gotten any other way. And I call those intelligent failures and mm-hmm. and and they are intelligent because they occur in new territory where we don't yet have existing knowledge in pursuit of some goal and you have good reason to believe that what you're trying might work that is you have a hypothesis that's informed by available knowledge, even if we don't have the full knowledge. And then finally, the failure is good when it's no bigger than it has to be to get the new knowledge, right? So this, um, you know, so the big idea is there are different kinds of failure. There There is a good kind, but please understand there are also bad kinds. And we have lots of opportunities to to prevent those when we're at our best.
0: Yeah, and in the business world, so because you know our podcast is is geared towards people in high places, you know, lots of leaders listening. Nobody wants to fail, Amy. It's it's embarrassing, <laughs> right? I mean, there's 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 shame attached to it, so we right. inherently, I think, uh, uh, learn to avoid it. And I, I think for the sake of this yeah. conversation, it's important to to understand that if if we accepted failure as part of life, as part of learning. Oh, maybe we'd be a lot more open to it and not see it as a yeah. major catastrophe. Right. But we don't.
1: Right. I mean, first of all, there's almost, there's two different strands to that idea. One is mm-hmm. we have to accept as the old saying goes, that to err is human, right. That that we will make mistakes. That's not the same thing as embracing, you know, intelligent failures, right. Mis- mistakes are deviations from best practice in known territory. an intelligent failure is essentially an experiment that didn't work out the way we had hoped. And so it is natural and understandable when, when people in high places, as you say, when people in companies shy away from embracing failure, they just don't want failure, they want only success. The easiest way to achieve that is to not take risks. But that creates obviously another risk, right? That creates the risk of stagnation or of obsolescence, right? If, if your company isn't innovating, and in order to innovate, you've got to experiment. In order to experiment, you've got to sometimes fail, then you will no longer be relevant at some point in the future. We can't tell you an exact date, um, but we can tell you that it is a given that more companies you know, um, die a premature death than continue on in perpetuity. So there's no way to live life or run a company that's risk free or failure free. You know, they go hand in hand. So it's really about are you willing to embrace the intelligent failures? So as to you know innovate and improve and, and thrive in an uncertain world, or are you going to just say, no, not on my watch? In which case, at some future date, you're out of luck.
0: Yeah. Can we get into this, maybe the mindset of, of why we're so afraid of failing? Maybe I, I answer the question with a, uh, the question. I don't know. It's fear. But, yeah. but are there other reasons why we are so afraid well, of failing?
1: I mean, I, I think it's a combination of what I'll call hardwiring and socialization. I mean, uh, our hardwiring, which is um, a kind of an evolutionary um, vestige of, of prehistoric times, where, in fact, if if you failed or experienced a failure that could be indeed fatal, if the you know if you were sort of rejected by the tribe, that would very likely lead to death from starvation or exposure or both. And, and so there's a kind of, you know, there's a there's a strong reason why we care what others think of us. We don't want rejection. We want acceptance. And we have then been socialized to believe that acceptance comes from, from, from succeeding, not failing, like from getting the answer right in school, not wrong, um, you know, from playing it safe, not going for gold. Right? And there, so there's a lot of messaging uh, in our culture, which I believe is being exacerbated by social media in a way that is deeply pernicious for, for people.
0: No question. Yeah, social media has so much to do with just, just putting the pressure on you to actually perform and be perfectionistic. And, you know, you, you look at people that are have such unbelievably high measures of success that most of us will never attain. Right. Uh, that we, we put that pressure on ourselves yeah. and then we eventually
1: fail. Right. We eventually fail. And also we're we're not putting when we're on social media, we're not seeing sort of real life unfold. Yeah. We're seeing curated bits of life. You know, we're seeing people putting out the putting their best foot forward, putting their, you know, best looking photograph or their, you know, lovely vacation uh, memories. We're not we're not seeing kind of the downs, we're seeing the ups.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay so let's do this there's i mean everybody is 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 exposed to failing and the, if you're human you've probably failed at one time or another okay let's be real so two part question for the the smart savvy business leader at the top of the mountain who has to answer to boards and shareholders and <laughs> wall street and the media okay yeah, yeah. what what shift needs to happen for in their minds for that person in other words, how can they rethink failure and then bring it down to the everyday, you know, person that is like, oh, I'm just trying to make a day to day here and pay my bills right. and feed my family.
1: Well, you know, let's let, let's start with that, right? Let, let's start with the everyday person. I mean, if you already have a family, this this part won't apply. But okay. if you have a family, that means you have gone through some intelligent failures most of the time. I mean, very few of us meet our sweetheart in eighth grade and then, you know, stay together for the rest of our lives, right? So um most of us had some dating experience and you know, maybe some relationships that that um didn't work out, right? So that means we have experienced intelligent failures in our personal life and you know in our in our quest to find a life partner we have necessarily had some false starts right so and and i would say not always but many of those were intelligent failures right you had good reason to believe this could be you know a great person to spend your life with um or you wouldn't have Started the relationship or, or gone into the relationship, you it was new territory. There's no crystal ball. There's no way to know for sure in advance that this is going to work out as you hope. There's a goal, of course, to 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 connect and and uh, maybe maybe build a life together, maybe build a family together, and um you know it's no bigger. Hopefully, you know no no bigger than it has to be to 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 understand whether this is working or not. Of course, sometimes our So that constitutes an intelligent failure and that, that, so that covers an awful lot of life. Like I described, you know, trying to find a career for me involved lots of, of failures along the way. Um, None of them fatal, none of them, you know, creating undue harm for others. Right. So, um, so, so I think what this is, you know, what this means, whether you're running a company or, or trying to, you know, live a good life is that, We need to embrace the possibility of failure in new territory because it's always there. And we're better off kind of realizing that in advance than being blindsided by it and, you know, feeling like, oh, that's not supposed to be there. It's not supposed to work that way. I mean, it's so, um, so forearmed, I mean, forewarned is forearmed. Maybe that's not a great phrase, but it's the Mm -hmm. idea is, When we are clear-eyed about reality, about the reality of life and the reality of our companies and our markets, um, we're better equipped to navigate that reality skillfully, right? So, yeah, so that's kind of, that's what it's all about. So all failures not alike Mm. Let's do our very best to apply the knowledge we have to prevent preventable failures. Mm. And then let's do our very best to make sure we've got enough of our resources, you know, human and otherwise, dedicated to the discovery of tomorrow's value propositions, you know, dedicated to innovation.
0: I like that. I'm curious because I dropped this word a couple of minutes ago about perfectionism. Um, what role does us our tendency to to be perfect and not fail, maybe um play in in this mm. failure mindset?
1: Oh, it's it's a, a central role. And and okay. actually just um around the same time as my book came out, another book came out by Thomas Curran, who's a perfectionism scholar, right? <laughs> He's a great scholar, but what he <laughs> studies is perfectionism. He's a psychologist who studies perfectionism in the in the UK. And it's a beautiful book, um, and it's really about what's about, of course, the, the harm that the mindset of perfectionism does to people, especially at the extreme, right? And a lot of times people, you know, maybe in a job interview will say, yeah, I'm a perfectionist as a, you know, as a strength. It's actually a misnomer. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's good to have high standards. You know, it's good to pursue excellence, uh, but perfectionism is a kind of crippling belief that I cannot make a mistake. I cannot come up short, or I'll die. I mean, it, it, you know, I, I will, or I'll be rejected, or I won't be who I think. I mean, they, there's such a deep anxiety about falling short that it can be profoundly limiting in in your ability to to do good work, right? And yeah. and to make good and to make good friendships and relationships because you're so terrified of being found out for for who you really are which is not perfect because none of us are perfect right we we are fallible human beings each each and every one of us so so perfectionism is a mindset that is quite at odds with the mindset of of health but a mindset of a healthy failure mindset um, where you know that you have an opportunity and even a responsibility to do your best in known territory, but you also will like it or not find yourself frequently in new territory. And you just will have to be uh, thoughtful in your experiments.
0: So is the very act of failing the antidote to being a perfectionist? In other words, if you fail, will you be less of a perfectionist?
1: I think so. I mean, it depends. I mean, if you fail and you overreact, you know, and you go into a tailspin, where you're you know afraid to come back out of the shell because it was such a horrible experience then that obviously won't be helpful but but more often than not um a little bit of failure does help uh the perfectionist right that that because you're sort of like oh i failed and i'm still here i'm okay I mean, I mean, yeah yeah if if you can mount the healthy attributions about the failure then you are well on your way to developing failure muscles, right? and, and you know, failure muscles, just like running muscles or, or math muscles. I, mean, I know those aren't literally true, but these are these are a way of strengthening our ability to bounce back from disappointments.
0: Yeah, the the shock is less the more you right. experience it. Right. And I think for the perfectionist, is the more fail uh, failure you experience, right? It brings you kind of down to earth. It lowers your expectations. Yeah. Maybe you're, yeah. um, I don't know, or, or makes them
1: more realistic. Yeah, right? there you go. Yeah. So it's not as if, yeah. I mean, if you once you realize, ah, oh, it's okay, right? And mm-hmm. and you talk, you talk yourself through it. You absolutely are better off because imagine, I mean, the the the, the real problem with perfectionism is that it will prevent you from taking risks, right? Because you know, you're smart enough to know that um, certain things don't come with a guarantee. You know, so if so, you'll do what what my former wonderful mentor Larry Wilson called "play not to lose." And and when you play not to lose, you can look like you're winning, right? You can mm. because you're sort of you're getting, you know, you're taking the easy courses, you're getting an A, um, you're you know, you're dating the people who you know you know, or, or, or are going to like you or, or what have you. And you're not going, you're not taking the, you're not taking the stretch goals in any aspect of your life. So, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained, but there is this, um, there is this potential for, I don't want to, mediocrity that, which would, you define that however that means for you, but you're not willing, you're not willing to, Go for what you really would love to do or try, because the risk of failing is too terrifying. That's such an interesting take.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm so curious because this, the research on the right kind of work, a uh, right kind of wrong, excuse me, as 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 it stated in the back of the book or in the copy that I got, uh, spans decades. Well, your research on psychological safety spans decades. I'm wondering if there was a merger of the two at some oh. point. Is there a link?
1: No, no, no. They were never separate, really. <laughs> honestly, um, so let's go. Let me. Um, let me just say, I I discovered psychological safety by accident because I was studying. I was part of a larger team studying medical errors. Now, and actually, more specifically medical errors that produced adverse drug events, right? So not not just, I mean, we all make mistakes, right? But the kind of if a mistake or mistakes aren't caught, that can lead to real harm, you know, to patients. And in the early 90s, this was a kind of new, a dawning realization in the in the healthcare community that people were um, in hospitals were sometimes getting harmed from the care, not from, not from their disease. And so there was real, you know, real interest in digging into this. I joined the team because I was interested in this phenomenon of being a learning organization. I figured, well, mistakes, learning, you know, they go together. And so um that's why I was a part of it. I didn't have a particular interest in medicine or healthcare, but I, I was interested in what does it take to be a learning organization? After all, we're in a changing world. Organizations need to learn. And that was as good a you know handhold on a research opportunity as i as i as i knew about at the time so adverse drug events are inherently failures right these are not desired outcomes um they're usually complex failures they're they're multi-causal sort of lots of little things that add up and didn't get caught and corrected in part because people don't speak up so you can see where i'm going this was By getting deeply into that context, I discovered the phenomenon of people feeling profoundly inadequate in speaking up when they weren't sure about how to do something or when they saw a mistake. And, and, you know, just that's normal, right? Human beings don't like to say, hey, I just made a mistake or, hey, I think you're making a mistake. But the surprise was that. Different teams, you know, in the same organization had really different norms and behaviors and expectations around that fundamental behavior. So that in some places, people were very candid and very quick to speak up. And in other places, they were very afraid. And I later called those differences, differences in psychological safety. And I published some papers on this and so on. And you know, I never thought it would become, as you said at the outset, a household word. But that—that that was in in part because other players, notably Google, uh, started using that research and discovered that it was a really psychological safety was a um, very predictive factor in team performance. And and so, so, so then all of a sudden, you know, I wrote the book about it, and I I became known as the sort of psychological safety person. But psychological safety has always been just a piece of a larger puzzle of how do we help organizations learn as they must in a changing world. And And another piece of that puzzle is how do we help them pursue more intelligent failures so that they can Mm. innovate as needed in a changing world. So these are, these are all, these have been integrated from the very beginning, but every, of course, when you write a paper or when you write a book, it has to be focused on something and do a good job clarifying that something as if that something is a standalone, but it's never a standalone really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Silicon Valley, Is uh, it it, they're known for, you know, fail fast, fail often, break things. Uh, Is all failure good or is there bad failure that we need to absolutely avoid?
1: There's absolutely bad failure uh, that we need to avoid. So just let's just think about those those phrases for a moment, you know, fail fast, break things. I will argue that's perfectly good advice. In fact, very good advice um, in, as an entrepreneur in new territory. Now I don't really love break things, right? I mean, I think that's, unless it's like break assumptions, you know, break, break, break old obsolete ideas yeah. and habits. Right. Sure. Right. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't really think you should break your glasses or I should break this, you know, cup over here or anything like that. So uh, I'm a big believer in preserving things that are, uh, that are valuable. Um so, so this perfectly good advice in what I will call new territory, right? You've got to fail fast because you have to discover fast what works and just as importantly, what doesn't. And by doing that, you get to your goal faster, your goal of a new company or a new product or, a you know, new invention. And so, so that makes good sense. But go tell a pilot at, you know, Delta Airlines to fail fast, fail often, that pilot would look right back at you and say, what are you talking about? What are you
0: smoking? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's completely nonsensical. And they would be right to push Mm -hmm. back. So Mm -hmm. my problem with the, you know, fail fast rhetoric is simply that it's context- dependent and it acts as if it isn't right it yeah. it fails to make the crucial distinctions between those domains where that is very good advice and those domains where that would be very bad advice and that's you know in the essence of the book is let's be you know let's be a bit more precise here let's let's tailor our best practices to the context in an appropriate way
0: yeah so in other words if it's if you need to be a learning organization it's totally okay to fail.
1: In parts of it, right? You know, in in R&D or as a startup, right? Startups know that they're going to fail while they're discovering their formula for success. But once once they discover a formula for success and they've got customers relying on them to deliver that value, um, then they should be a lot more focused on delivering that value. Although they better have a few people over here off to the side doing the R&D for tomorrow's value.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right. Let's transition to solutions. Like, uh, so I, I'm I'm really curious about the practice or the science of feeling well. How do we create a feeling well mindset? I mean, is there a first step?
1: Yeah, you know, if if um, I'm going to say something, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that question with knowledge that some of our listeners may recognize because it's virtually identical to the answer to the question of how do you create. Psychological safety, mm-hmm. uh, and and so it's you know how do you create a a, a, a good failure mindset? How do you create um, a healthy failure culture? That's again one and the same as psychological safety. So the it's it's part one is set the stage. It's set be get out if you're a leader in an organization, get out ahead of of some of these um, predictable. Failures in mindset and behavior that your that your employees and your managers will fall will fall prey to, um, and and the the problematic behaviors you want to get ahead of so that they don't happen are you know to insist on perfection to say you know you better meet that goal or else um, because that really sends a strong message that I don't want to hear from you you know when when reality intervenes and that's that's honestly the last thing you want so. Uh, What is it? Articulate the nature of the work and the context in which you're doing it. As follows, you know, be be very focused on how much uncertainty is there, how much, you know, how much um, novelty is there. Like, what is it we're trying to do, and why? I do think emphasizing purpose early and often is very powerful because it helps people take the necessary risks that learning entails. Like when I remind myself ah, you know, we're here to take care of patients, or we're here to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. It helps me overcome the little interpersonal challenges that I that I face, right? So that's, um, so basically, just reframe reality as best you can as a reality that involves uncertainty, or novelty, or both, so that people know, yes, this is the kind of reality where of course we speak up, where of course we experiment, where of course we um, offer a dissenting view, full stop, right? But then that's not enough, right? That's kind of saying, don't forget we're in this crazy world trying to do something really important, but then actively, proactively invite input, right? Ask good questions. Come out on a you know on a routine basis saying things like, I may miss something, what are you seeing out there? Oh, what are customers saying? What ideas do you have? I mean you're you're showing your curiosity in a way that invites people to offer their tentative suggestions and concerns. And then finally, monitor your response, particularly to bad news. Your instinct when someone brings you bad news, a project is, has not delivered as follows will be to Feel angry, feel upset, feel frustrated, and often to say things like, well, how did that happen as your very first response? It's an important question. I think we always want to look into what happened and why, but your first response ought to be what I'll call forward facing, you know, where, where it's sort of, um, thanks for that clear line of sight. How can I help? Right. Uh-huh. The, the more you react in a learning oriented way to bad news, the more. Uh, people are well set up to fix the problems that will inevitably occur
0: yes which will prevent them from failing in in a a bad or horrific way later okay right right Uh, right. i mean
1: so many big failures that i've studied could have been prevented had people been more willing and able to speak up when they were just small failures mm. or small problems (laughs)
0: So I'm I'm smiling because it's the more you talk, the more I'm I'm listening to the to, to fearless organization in my head. Oh
1: yes, no, it's true. Yeah. As I said, they're all they're all integrated, intertwined. But this yeah. Substance, you know, this is more this is more about the substance of work in the and in fearless organization. I talk about the the different contexts. You know, the more routine and the more variable and the more innovative contexts. Um, you'll see that again in this book, but it's more now. Okay, what, what what really is the playbook for success in those contexts? Yeah, with with a healthy mindset around what could go wrong.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of um, you know humble leadership. Uh, you know, read Ed- Edgar Schein's book, and and so what role does humility play in oh. feeling well?
1: Humility humility plays a huge role in failing well um, because humility, which is not the same, and I love Ed Schein and his books, um, humility is not the same as false modesty, right? It's not oh, I don't, you know I don't know anything, I don't have a PhD, what have you. It's it's um, the humility to know that you don't have a crystal ball, right? It's the humility to know that even your glances backwards are limited by your expertise, your biases, you know, your understanding of what has already happened is 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 imperfect. But your glances forward are absolutely imperfect. Right. So it's the humility to say, wow, like I wonder what could happen next. And I really want it to be, you know, serving our purpose and on target. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to rely on others and I'm gonna have to show up in a way that people appreciate that I'm interested and and willing to learn.
0: Yeah. 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 I always thought that curiosity was always a great strength of the humble leader myself. But yeah. so,
1: mm-hmm. well, they go hand in hand, right? As yeah. soon as you remind yourself to be humble, you are almost naturally curious. Like, oh, I'm missing, you know, you're basically saying when you're humble, you're saying, oh, I'm missing something. I'm not yeah. omniscient. Right. And then it's like, well, what is it? You know, I, I'm desperate to know. So I'm curious.
0: Yeah, yeah. All right, you got a lot of stories or illustrations, case studies of of uh, leaders, executives in the book learning to have failed well. Is there one that you you like that kind of floats to the top? What's a good example of of a, oh,
1: a you know, there, as you say, there's so many, but mm-hmm. perhaps perhaps my favorite um, story is it because it's almost intelligent but not quite. Um, is is Ray Dalio's failure in 1982 um, l- well publicized at the time, where he um, he was a very successful entrepreneur and had started the financial services, the investment firm Bridgewater, which still exists today. But in 1982, he had essentially bet all of the firm's resources on. Um, a prediction that he had about the direction the US economy was heading. It was absolutely counter to what virtually everyone else thought would happen. But Dahlia was convinced that he was right and everyone else is wrong. And he suddenly found himself literally in 1982, unable to pay his family's bills. Right? He had to borrow money from his dad. And this is a guy with, you know, an MBA from Harvard, seven years of such success that he was constantly on business news programs. And, you know, he was, he was a real success story, right? And then suddenly here he is, with this massive failure. Now, that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, a, a good outcome. And it wasn't, um, except that it was life-changing uh, for him. So this is why I name it as a favorite story, because in that, you know, in, in being shocked to be wrong, and also, you know, in, in sort of in trouble having been wrong, um, Dalio later said that failure was the best thing that ever happened to me. And what you are about to hear coming is that yes he did learn from it um, and he learned from it he learned the right lessons from it. He said I learned to sort of uh, temper my confidence with humility mm. and to shift from the mindset of I know I'm right mm. but, you know you're so smart and so you know so knowledgeable to I wonder why I'm right. you know just hear how that just opens up the crack. Of curiosity, right? That was missing before, and um, and and that that new mindset was one of what I call choosing learning over knowing. That's an active choice, and that's an active choice that all of us can learn to make, but we don't make it spontaneously. You know, we spontaneously just because of how we're wired, we choose knowing over learning. But if you can shift to choosing learning over knowing remarkable things can happen and the next 40 years uh, since that time bridgewater has been one of the most successful uh, firms in its industry you know yeah. by by a margin a uh, good margin so so let's go back to that failure though um it was obviously new territory right nobody nobody can see the future of the economy it was in pursuit of a goal right to make money he had done his homework right he had a hypothesis um nobody was a better student of the markets and economic indicators than Ray Dalio. So, so far, those are the first three criteria for an intelligent failure, but he missed the last one, right? The last one, remember, is um, no bigger than it has to be, right? The failure should be as small as possible to get the new knowledge. You don't bet everything you have Mm -hmm. in uncertain terrain. And and, and so, it wasn't intelligent. It was almost intelligent, but not intelligent. Mm -hmm. And Yet, um, he learned the right lessons from it, and that contributed to his, I mean, you could argue that his subsequent success would have been less without that big, you know, hit over the head kind of uh, moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Amy, when you fail as an organization, do you, would you go as far as those people that say that, oh, yeah, we need to celebrate failure, we need to throw a party? Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes if. I mean I am a big fan of intelligent failures having parties or you know or rituals of some kind where we you right. know we get together and we toast the the hard work that went into this discovery. You know this necessary work that went into this discovery. I would never suggest celebrating a basic failure or a complex failure. We would never celebrate a failure that involved fatalities. You know we would we would never um, celebrate a failure that involves someone doing sloppy work on purpose, you know. Right. So, but if we, you know, new territory in pursuit of a goal with a hypothesis yeah. and no bigger than it had to be, I think yes, because it's the only way to make sure people are keep are willing to keep doing it going forward, and that's the only way to make sure that we succeed going forward.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's celebrating failure to advance the greater good.
1: Right. Of the organization.
0: Right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, wow. So let's see. Let's pull back and uh, think about this more systemically, or or maybe the uh, cultural uh, when it comes to the work culture. What would you tell you know the senior executives who kind of set set the the criteria, the policies, the the procedures, etc. To create a fail well culture or a system that yeah. promotes that, what what would you tell them? How First, do don't
1: assume. Right, don't assume that people are are thinking coherently and, and and logically at all times about the obvious need that you see, you know, for innovation, uh, you know, for continued progress, um, for speaking up clearly and honestly with what they see what they know what they worry about just don't assume that's the case assume in fact it's not the case unless you you and your colleagues do do the hard work to build that kind of culture to me you know psychological safety is about um speaking up yes but a, a more almost a more um accurate way to describe this is it's a learning culture do you want a learning culture in your organization, or do you want a knowing culture? Mm. Um, and and I think you want a learning culture that is dedicated to high standards because the purpose is meaningful to you and to your your employees. So it's it's about um, it's about don't assume, get out ahead of it. You know, frame the opportunity that you see that you glimpse. Um, as the very real opportunity it is, um, but recognize that it involves risk-taking along the way. Invite that, you know, clarify that, be open to it, celebrate it. you you know, the mo- probably as, as a senior leader, you have, you do three key things that affect the culture. One is how you show up, your behavior. You are a role model, like it or not, right? So yeah. you show up as a learner, as someone who acknowledges um, their own mistakes, their own, hmm, I got that wrong, right? You will just set that model that that's actually a strong and, and important way to be around here you um you also are responsible for putting in place you know the the systems and practices and training and opportunities to to develop others um and you're responsible to um to give uh you know clear and helpful feedback to the people that report directly uh, to you and and those are those are the primary ways that you um you sort of shape the culture and they're, they're far more powerful than, than many people realize.
0: Yeah. And it's, again, I keep, it's like, it's becoming so much more evident to me, the link between psychological safety and sort of setting the, setting the, setting the conditions to fail. Well, is becoming even more clear. Yeah. To me. Mm-hmm.
1: Great. Right. Mm. Cause that's, yeah. you know, that's what it's all about. I, I, I could have easily written these two books in the other order, although I wouldn't have and couldn't have, but, but I mean, logically it would, it'd be fine. Right. Just let's talk about what it means to fail well. Um, and then, okay. Since we've done that now, let's talk about, let's really dig drill down into what does it take to create the kind of psychologically safe failure culture that makes this, makes this thing. Um, but here, this is the substance, you know, this is the substance of what work looks like or what life looks like in uncertain Domains versus the more certain ones.
0: Yeah. Well, as we wind down here, Amy, uh, what's your ultimate hope for people reading this
1: book? You know, my hope is that they get, um, you know, something of a playbook for navigating our inherently uncertain world, you know, that they can use at home as parents that they can use, you know, as, as, uh, as young people starting out their career. Um, and also as, as senior leaders, um, you know, leading organizations that there is, um, they have a responsibility and an opportunity to make fine, make distinctions between domains, um, and where failure is just absolutely essential to progress. Um, and where at our best we can, we can prevent most, um, uh, failures just that kind of playbook i mean i think it's it's hard for me to imagine um living my life without it at this point because it's become so part part of of my thinking um so that's i think that's the um that's really the the aspiration right there
0: yeah so we have this tradition on the show it's the it's posing the the leadership love question and I, and i'm like you know i think we can actually make a link to failing well to attaching <laughs> practical care and love uh to this so here's the, the question is basically you know how do we lead our our businesses our employees with more practical and actionable love day in and day out and is there a link to maybe the topic yeah. of today's discussion
1: absolutely well first of all um my, my my one if i had one word answer it would be empathy right mm-hmm. that just pause and remind yourself uh the what to, that you don't know, but you can imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes, right? And what what they might be going through. And when you're when you're leading with empathy, you're going to be um, you know better able to care for people. Um, I like your title though of love in action. I mean, I think work is love in action. Love is um, love is essentially um a bond right love love is like gravity it's a force that that pulls things together and um love is metaphysical gravity so buckminster fuller said and so l- love is about feelings of connection not not distance from each other and and love in action is about is about caring and and showing up in a way that recognizes our, our interdependence. It's it's you know our interdependence is undeniable, but we try to deny it. We try to sort of just be an island. And I think the 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 final chapter of the book and my final idea is that we are all fallible human beings. That's just a given. Now how do we thrive right? How do we thrive given that we're fallible human beings? And one answer is we must do it together, right? We must do it with love, with interconnectedness and facing an unknown future together.
0: Mm. I'm so glad it came from you. <laughs> 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 That's great stuff. Amy, we bring it home with two questions as we do with every guest. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that <sighs> you'd like us to know?
1: Well, uh I'll, I'll put it like this. It's, it's ang- anger. I mean, not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not angry. It's not, it's just, I see so much anger and anger, mm. you know, anger could be um, anger in a sense, even more than hate is the opposite of love right? because it's, it's almost a, it's a, there's a righteousness to anger. Anger says, I'm right and you're wrong and you're wrong for being wrong. And, and it it um it's self-sealing right when i'm angry i am not really open to the possibility that i may be missing something that i should be more humble in my conclusion so the human emotion anger it's clearly with us for a self-protective it exists for self-protection in some evolutionary way um but it's it's a remarkably difficult and 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 dangerous emotion that seems to be dominating many many uh news stories today
0: yeah that's so that's so true okay you close us out amy what's a one thing one key takeaway that we can uh take home with us
1: well aim high team up fail well learn fast (laughs)
0: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> that's going to be in my show notes. Is probably the quote, um, uh, Amy's quote of the day. Uh, that's fantastic. It's been such an honor to get back, get you back on the show, and uh, just know that you always have a home here. Every time you you bust out with a book, a new book, uh, we're going to bring you back.
1: Thank you. It's an honor to be here.
0: Yeah. So, if people want to connect with you, where can they go?
1: Well, amycedmondson.com uh, and also go to Harvard Business School to my faculty page if you want to get um more detail about articles and and other books. But right kind of wrong is the is the place to go right now for most of you know the 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 depth of these ideas.
0: Yeah. Right, kind of wrong. The science of failing well. She is Amy Edmondson, and I'm Marcel Schwantes. Keep the conversation going on social media with hashtag love in action podcast. And also look for my show notes, as well as a YouTube link to watch the show on my website, MarcelSchwantes.com. And hey, finally, if you're interested in sponsoring an episode of the show, let's talk. Reach me on my website. Or find me on LinkedIn. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review. Until next time, don't forget, the future
1: of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and watch your business grow.